Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach and midlife mentor. And once again, I'm so glad to be here with you for this week's episode, which is all about how to find more joy by being in the present moment in midlife with the author of one of my favorite books, Tom Sterner of The Practicing Mind, Developing Focus and Discipline in Your Life, Master Any Skill or Challenge by Learning to Love the Process. The Practicing Mind. Buckle up, girlfriend. A lot of the mindfulness concepts you've been learning about and perhaps even struggling with are going to sink in as you listen to this interview. Today, we're talking about the importance of developing more thought awareness, especially in midlife. This skill can be a pretty big thing. In fact, I think it can completely change your life, and I've experienced this personally and seen it firsthand with so many amazing clients and women in the middle in my community. If you care about being way more intentional about your life, you will want to learn this skill for sure. As I mentioned, our guest today is author Tom Sterner of the amazing book, The Practicing Mind. I refer so many people to this book. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Tom. First, he's a guy. He's a man in the middle, not a woman in the middle. But it's okay. I'm thrilled he's here. (laughs) Kind of an honorary woman in the middle. I met Tom a few years ago because I was lucky enough to hear him present at a mastermind event at the Life Coach School. And then I participated in a book study with him and a small group of people. I was blown away by his teachings and the way his personal stories and examples made it so easy for me to really understand the mindfulness concepts he was sharing. And that was really why I was just so excited to have him on the podcast. So here's a little more. Thomas Sterner is the founder and CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute. As a successful entrepreneur, he's considered an expert in present moment functioning. He's a popular and in-demand speaker, and you'll see why. And he works with high-performance individuals, including athletes, coaches, industry groups, CEOs, and individuals of all ages, freeing them to operate effectively within high-stress situations so that they can break through to new levels of mastery. Now, as an expert present moment functioning coach, Tom has brought clarity to thousands worldwide regarding how they can achieve their goals with less effort in the least amount of time while enjoying the process. Top media outlets such as NPR, Fox News, and Forbes have sought his advice. Like I said, he's the author of the international bestseller, The Practicing Mind, Developing Focus and Discipline in Your Life, and the book Fully Engaged, Using the Practicing Mind in Daily Life. Now, Tom's background is pretty interesting. Prior to founding the Practicing Mind Institute, he served as the chief concert piano technician for a major performing arts center, preparing instruments for the most demanding performances. During his 25-year tenure as a high-level technician, he personally worked for industry giants 
such as Pavarotti, Ray Charles, Fleetwood Mac, Tony Bennett, Wynton Marsalis, and many more. Now, this provided him with a pretty unique opportunity to talk one-on-one with some of the most disciplined minds on how they approached the process of practicing and dealing with stress when they needed to focus and perform at their highest level. Aware of his undisciplined personality as a young person, he set out on a quest in his late teens determined to understand the nature of the disciplined mind, the elements of productive practice, regardless of the application and how to transform his own weaknesses into personal strengths. Now, do you do this sort of thing when you find that you have a weakness? (laughs) You're going to learn so much from this interview. Now, decades of research in Eastern thought, sports psychology, and neuroscience combined with hundreds of hours of individual coaching have given him an inspiring and transformative story to tell, one filled with simplicity, practicality, and humor. In his downtime, he's an accomplished musician, private pilot, experienced and avid golfer, sailor, and target archer. Now, if you really think about it, just about all of life involves you practicing something at some level, driving, brushing your teeth, doing laundry, learning academic skills, exercising, cooking, hobbies, gardening, and so many more examples. It's like everything. Learning how to embrace practicing as a valuable part of your journey with whatever you're doing and actually enjoy being more mindful can really change your life. I'm so excited for you to dive into this episode. Enjoy. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast. Hi, Susie. It's great to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited that you're here. You know, it's not that often that we have a man in the middle on the podcast. This is only the fourth time. So you are special. I feel special. (laughs) So I can't tell you how many times I've recommended your book, The Practicing Mind, to my clients. It is so relevant to the work women in the middle are doing around shifting gears in midlife and learning to be more intentional about their lives, often their, you know, what they consider to be their second chapter. So one of the things that we are fascinated with here at the podcast is talking to people who've made a midlife change, and you did this too, so I wanted to start there. How the heck did you go from a couple of decades of being the chief concert piano technician for a major performing arts center, working with industry giants like Tony Bennett, Pavarotti, Ray Charles, and more, to founding the Practicing Mind Institute. What happened? I know there's a story there. Well, there there certainly is. Um, You know, one of the things that I had figured out, when I got into the piano technician field, I was uh, actually in college. And in uh, and my major was something completely different. It was in turf and horticulture, uh, <laughs> which I finished. Um, but I had been a musician and was uh, very mechanical. And uh, my father suggested they they could see that I was really not all that interested in the horticulture. And 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 part of the problem, quite frankly, was in those days the herbicides and everything they were using were so toxic. They basically were warning us if you don't want kids with two heads, you might want to consider not doing this. Um, because oh my. Was, so I had decided that I needed to go in a different direction. And the um, piano, I love the piano. I love the shape of the piano. I couldn't walk past the piano without touching the keys. And so I thought, you know, this, this looks like a good choice for me. And it turned out to be. 
but you know, as any entrepreneur knows, um, when you start out as an entrepreneur, you have too much work for one person and not enough income for two, and usually not enough income for one. And so I was very fortunate in that it was, in general, an, an older person's job. There, were no, there was no one in the tri-state area that I was in that was anywhere near my age. They were all my father's age. But as they retired, they, they just gave me their business. And so by the time I was late 20s, I had a really huge business. And as I continued, by the time I was in my mid-30s, I would say I had peaked. And the reason I knew that was I had made the mistake of assuming that when I was younger, I learned that I didn't want to work for, for an hourly wage. And the reason I didn't want to do that was because I worked side by side routinely with people that didn't work as hard as me. And so I thought, you know, there's, there's, this is not an equitable situation. So I'd like a job where I work piecework because then it's just how many, how many things can I do in a day and do correctly. Now, the thing that I didn't see there, which I re began to realize in my mid-30s, was initially I thought, well, let's just say I can do a thousand clients a year. So if I have enough clients to fill that schedule, I'm going to be gold. And I figured out maybe 2,000 people would be enough to keep me busy um, at a rate of a thousand clients a year. Meaning, you know, the service calls were so many hours. Some people had their pianos worked on twice a year. Some people once a year, some people every two years. So I figured it out that I needed about 2,000 people to give me basically a thousand client um, worth of work a year. Well, once I passed 2,000, it really didn't matter. You know, then I had 3,000, then 4,000, but I couldn't get to that money because all, I just was working more and more hours and then I had young children and I thought this is not a good solution either. So that was when I made the decision that I need to, um, I need to go in a different direction so that my business can get as big as it wants without me uh, running myself into the ground. And actually, there was a, a pivotal conversation that I had with a businessman. I was, um, was talking to him. I was at a trade show buying uh, woodworking machinery because I was always into that. And uh, the guy said, you know, you know, you, you're as a piano technician, you know, um, we might, and you're using our equipment, we might like to have you as a Northeast regional vet, a rep. And I thought, well, that might be even a better job. So let me check it out. And when I met with the guy that was the head of the company, he said, you know, Tom, you don't really have a successful business. He said, you have what I'll call a successful sole proprietorship. Mm -hmm. And he said, and what that means is that the, the bigger you get, the more you work. He said, and in a successful business, the bigger you get, you should be able to take the option to go play golf or you know, something like that while the business is running itself. And that really hit me in the face because at that point I was I was the guy to call. I was working in four states, um, driving a lot, working seven days a week, and I said, something has to change. And I had been interested in Eastern thought and sports psychology and peak performance and neuroscience, and I had, it was a passion of mine, and I had been studying it and meditating and all this stuff since I was a teenager. And I thought, I can write a book about this because I use this every day. And it's difficult for people to understand in piano work, it's, um, it was a great incubator because everything you do in piano work is 88 times at least because you've got 88 notes. 
So if you're going to make an adjustment, you're going to have to do it 88 times. And if you look at a piano action, if you're going to rebuild them, remanufacture them like I did, you've got 5,000 parts and 34 adjustments per note. I mean, it just goes on and on. And I spent hours and hours by myself doing repetitious work. And so I needed a mindset that would get me through that and make me love the process of achieving instead of being attached to this moment when I, quote, finished the piano, because that was a, I needed to be able to survive like that. So I was looking for that answer when I was basically researching what eventually became the practicing mind. And, and then I made a decision when I was in my early 40s. I said, look, at that point, I had um, two business properties. I had a six-figure income. I had $100,000 in tolling. I had a huge client base. And I said, I'm, I'm going to walk away from all of this, and I'm going to write this book. Now, I can assure you that there was some resistance to that. <laughs> I mean, I had, at the time I was married, I had kids that were going to be um, in college in about two years. And, um, you know, I had a lot of people, extended family, that didn't relate to self-help books at all. And this concept that I was going to walk away from this business that I built that was so successful and had such a reputation and do something that had no relationship to it at all that required a completely different set of skills. And uh, at a time when I needed to be making, when most people were starting to look at funding their kids' college and also at this, and, and looking at, well, you know, and 15 years after that, I'm going to start taking it easy. And it just seemed like the dumbest thing I could do. And um, just because of my personality, I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to jump off the cliff, but I think I'll learn to fly before I hit the ground. And um, I can tell you that initially, it looked like they were right and I was wrong um, <laughs> because I really, and I actually wrote about this in the second book, I set a goal without enough data to figure out a time frame, which is something that we all do. We, we set a goal without the information as to how long it should take, and we make up a number in our head. And that would be very similar to saying, I want to lose 30 pounds. That should take about five days. Now, we can look at that and we can go, that's just absolutely ridiculous. It's never going to happen. But we do that with so many goals that we set for ourselves. And then what follows that is we begin to judge not only our progress, but our ability to accomplish goals based on this timeline that's, that's not achievable. And so many times you, a person could be, they change their diet and, and exercise and all that. They could actually be on an upward trend in terms of achievement but in their mind, they're going down and they're a failure. And so for me, I really had no idea how long it should take. And so initially, I was making about 35 bucks a week selling books and, um, and hemorrhaging money, you know, because I was cash rich because I sold everything, but I was still paying my mortgage payments and, you know, all the, the um, everything that you have to pay and uh, health insurance and all that sort of thing. So I was concerned, I have to say. Um, but after a period of, and that went on for maybe two years, two and a half years, wow. that the book was, um, you know, it was like the little train that thought it could because I wasn't putting a whole lot in the uh, advertisement and marketing, but it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And eventually it was first, I think it was number one in stress management several times on Amazon. And then I started getting, I ended up getting called by a, uh, I tried to get a, a, an agent initially and they said, um, you're not big enough. And then I got called by an agent and said, um, 
I'd like to take you over, take, you know, take you on. And I think I can get you a, a big contract, which they did. And, uh, and everything, the rest is history. It just changed. It, it became everything that I'd hoped it would be. So now I work with people all over the world and I do interviews like this. I've been on TV and you know, that on and on. I mean, it's like, uh, it, it, but it didn't seem like that when it first was going to start, but it's turned out to have a very happy ending. Well, it seemed so scary, yet you did it anyway. Absolutely. And, you know, because I always had the attitude of it's not whether I know how, it's whether I feel like I can figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that was really where I was coming from. I thought my whole life I have enjoyed challenges and I don't know how to publish a book. I had to self-publish it. I didn't know how to get an ISBN number, how to get a cover design. I had an editor. I'd never been through anything. I didn't have the faintest idea. Um, but I thought I can figure it out. I figured out a lot of other things in my life, you know, so I just approached it like that and I just kept using what I wrote about in the book, you know, to keep me on even keel. And, um, you know, and if, and it was, I can tell you, it was extremely exciting the, the day the truck pulled up with all these boxes of books, you know, and I actually got to see the thing in print. But like I said, yes, my, my perspective was, I don't have to know how there is a way to do it and I'll figure it out as I go. Well, that is something very insightful. And so many of us don't think that way about scary things. <laughs> so let's talk more about the power of practice. Practice has been a huge part of your life with what you did professionally and with golf and some other things that you've been very involved with and what you call present moment functioning. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, present moment functioning is, you know, where when you are functioning completely in the present moment, when your mind is fully engaged in this moment and what you're doing, I mean, what all the peak performance, it's been said from other philosophies for thousands of years, but we've proved it with empirical science. Um, your mind is, is operating, for one, your, your thoughts thin out. So because your thoughts thin out, you have access to more of your consciousness. And that's why you experience clarity. Um, and because you have more clarity, you feel internally, you feel content and calm. Your mind isn't always racing. And you begin to become what I'll call the observer of your mind. Because one of the things that we know for sure now through neuroscience is that <clears throat> about 95% of the day, we're not actually living consciously. We're just living programs that either we have installed in our subconscious or someone else has installed in our subconscious. And I see this all the time working with people because, you know, they have a reaction to a situation um, that they're not aware of. They're just in the, re they're just in the situation in their mind. So uh, I, ha I actually set someone up one time in a discussion about this um, because they didn't believe that. I said, you know, you really the science validates that only about 5% of your day are you really consciously making your decisions. And they said, you know, I don't believe that. And I said, you sit there and listen and don't talk again until I tell you. Well, they backed way up and I said, you see that? I said, all I had to do was change my tone of voice and your mind said, go get the response to that. I said, there was no choice making in that. You just I, you know, I did this and you did that. I said, it was really easy to do. And I said, and I just wanted you to see that this is what happens. Somebody says something to you that's happy, you feel happy. Somebody says something that's sad, you feel sad. You're not actually making a conscious choice. How do I want to handle this? 
what's the best way for me to do this? What's the most efficient way? What's going to bring me the most um, contentment inside and, and make me the most I can be and expand me as much? You, none of that's going on. You're just reacting to, actually, you're just, your subconscious, your mind is just getting responses off the hard drive and just firing off. It just happens so quickly that you are, you feel like you're doing the thinking, but you're actually not. And that's what we, that's what present moment functioning is. It's learning to feel what's, there's a difference between being impatient and noticing that your mind is producing an impatient thought. There are two different perspectives. And once you know what that feels like to experience that, that's the key to the prison door because then the noticer, the observer, whatever you want to label it, is really who you are. The, the part of you that just reacts to all this stuff is not who you are. That's just a program that's being played. So just it's very, thoughts, very yeah. Right. That's right. Exactly. So we are pretty much compelled to focus on goals instead of the process of achieving goals. And I get caught in that all the time as I'm I'm sure you do. Everybody does. But why, why does that happen? I bet you don't do it anymore. Why are we so compelled to focus on a goal and discount everything, all the practice, all the skill development, everything that it takes to get there? I think it, um, fundamentally it's in learning. I mean, you know, we, <clears throat> right from the beginning of our life, I mean, we're taught things like um, you want to get all A's. You know, like it's not you know, people will pay lip service to just do your best. But that really isn't, you know, if you get D's, then then you get, you're not doing your best, (laughs) you know. Um, I mean, we're not really teaching people about the process of learning. And I think that what changes that, what you're talking about is true. We are attached to the goal, is when we learn that the reason a goal has any experiential meaning to us is because of everything that we went through to get to the goal. So in other words, if I take a piece of chalk and I draw it on the street and I say, there's the finish line, go ahead and step over it. It doesn't mean anything. Why does it feel so um, exhilarating at the end of a race when you step over? It's because you ran the race. And when people learn that this is just a fundamental truth about the human spirit and how and that it it needs these challenges so for uh, another example would be i've worked with college kids and stuff and i'll say something to them like um what do you do with a video game when you master it and they go i get rid of it and i said um i said well why do you think you do that they said because it's it's boring i said that's right you like it when you can almost do it but not quite do it i said as soon as you it gets too easy for you to do you don't want to do it anymore. He said, we crave challenges. We crave the unknown. We, create, we crave that, but we've been taught to fear it, um, even though we crave it. Because if we didn't think like that, we'd all be still living in cages, our caves. We, you know, this is one of the things that we do um, as part of our human spirit is we want expansion. And unfortunately, we are taught, we all experience what I'll call a feeling of being incomplete. Um, and that feeling is, uh, is utilized by the marketing media. I mean, we're taught that, um, you can't be happy until you have this house, you're driving this car, your relationship is like this. You could take this vacation, what you're making this much money. It's always, 
wherever you are, you can't be happy there. You've, it's someplace outside of you over there. And my interpretation of that feeling is we're, we're actually supposed to have that feeling. It's not a bad thing. That feeling is what makes us paint the Sistine Chapel. It, it's why we don't live in, um, we've moved so far forward. We have all this art. We have all, all of the things, all the wonderful things that we do is because we have this awareness that there's more than where I am right now. And it's an infinite opportunity for growth. And so no matter how much I grow internally, emotionally, intellectually, I'm never going to be as far as I can go. And so that feeling of incomplete is really supposed to be there. It's just misused and misinterpreted. Oh, that's so good. And I'm having a little flashback to uh, a book study course that I did with you a couple of years ago. And we all uh, had to set little goals. And I don't know if you remember this, but it really made a huge impact on me. My little goal was to practice doing 10 push-ups a day. And when I started, I could not do 10 push-ups a day. And eventually, mm -hmm. I could do 10 push-ups a day. And what happened when I reached that goal of doing 10 push-ups a day is I became full of self-judgment and embarrassment. And there, I don't remember how many, maybe 10 of us were in that little course. Yes, 10. There was 10. And I just remember saying to you, but I'm, I'm so embarrassed. Maybe my goal wasn't hard enough. And I, I reached this too quickly. And I, I was just floored. And what you taught me was that, first of all, being in self-judgment like that took me out of the present moment. And then also what I made that goal mean, and I just totally put myself down and didn't focus anymore on practicing and making it even better than it was. That's, you know, I remember that now. I, I remember the, um, the whole course and, the, um, and everybody that was in it. And I remember you making that point. And I think that what, if there's a core fundamental in, in what I try to get people to understand, it's that there's a different, the difference between mindfulness and the practicing mind, which I think is a big difference, um, is that Mindfulness is part of the practicing mind, but it doesn't go the other way. Mindfulness is being in the present moment. The practicing mind is about learning to enjoy the process of becoming mindful. Because when you can do that, then you can apply that to anything. When you can enjoy the process of being a better parent, of being a better business person, of being better at interviews, at being better at golf. When you can enjoy that process and stop feeling like there's this place that I'm not at, and when I can get there, this feeling is going to go away. When you can learn that the, the, the joy is in the process of achieving the goal, whatever that goal is. And for you in that particular thing, it didn't matter whether you're um, – your goal was 10 push-ups or 100. If it had been 100, you would have just been enjoying the process of achieving it over a longer period of time. So you, you set that goal, you achieved it. And what you should have gained from that is the, um, the understanding that you can set a goal and achieve it. And you can actually enjoy the process of becoming the goal. Uh, again, where we get messed up is when we, when we set a, a, um, a goal and then we don't know how long it should take to, um, to achieve that goal. And then we begin to judge our progress. But um, we really should just look at those situations as if we're gathering data and, and start judging. Because the judging to me, 
I, I really am very strong about you need to learn to analyze because there's a very big difference between analyzing and judging. Analyzing is getting information and there's no judgment attached to it. We have to analyze. That's how we make decisions. But once we start judging, the judging uh, to me is um, it's like there's a line and on the left side of the line are what we'll call vibrational rates where you're happy, sad, angry, shameful. On the other side of the line is exhilaration, bliss, joy, love, all those things. And everything that we do in life is trying to get on the right side of the line. We're always trying to make ourselves happy. You can think about whatever you do, that's your goal internally is always to be happy. And if you notice, if you can notice the feeling that this present thought is giving you, then you, and then you have an idea, is this taking me to the right side of the line? Is this taking me to the left side of the line? Because there's no place, there's no point in being on the left side of the line. There's, um, you know, to me, you can learn that it's like, a, it's a great barometer because you can notice your feeling a lot easier than you can notice your thoughts because the feeling, the emotion is stronger. And so it's a little more in your face. And if you can learn to pay attention to that, you can, you can learn to understand where you are in the process of achieving, like, am I enjoying this? Am I not enjoying this? If I'm not enjoying this, then I'm judging something. That's what you need to learn when you're setting your goals, is to set the goal and just use it as a rudder. And it's very important if you're making changes in your life, in the middle of your life, because initially you're gathering information, you know, and you can't, when you make the goal, you, you can't even know how long, how, like when I left the piano technology business, I didn't, I thought I knew how long it should take to make a bunch of money off of this book. <laughs> I run the numbers, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking like, well, geez, you know, there's how many hundreds of millions of people get on the internet. And, you know, if I have a website and I put it on Amazon, I, you know, if I just tap into 0.01% of them, I'm gold. I mean, I just was so naive, you know, um, and that created, it, it caused me to have to use everything I'd written about in the book to keep my sanity, you know. So, like I said, um, it's very important that you're aware of this. For sure. <laughs> so, I think your work is particularly relevant to midlife for two reasons. So, I wanted to talk to you about these. The first thing is that in midlife, we have a hypersensitivity to the passage of time, which you touched on a little bit with that example. We think we're running out of time, so there's lots of focus on rushing to get to the goal even faster because of this. So I just think that hyper-focus on the passage of time amplifies this whole goal issue even more. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does, yes. Yes, and it's, uh, but it's, it's coming from um, an attachment to the moment we have the goal. If you, if you can reverse that and find your joy in the process of, of achieving the goal, then that time thing drops away because you're happy right now. You're happy right now accomplishing your goal. You're not feeling like what you're describing is, I'm not happy where I am but I know I'll be happy when I have this new job or whatever it is. So the time between now and when I reach that is this nuisance that I have to deal with until I get there. And if you can switch that to where the reason that's going to feel so good is because of everything I'm doing now. So I may as well enjoy what I'm doing now as I'm accomplishing that. And then 
your experience, your interpretation of the experience changes. Absolutely. Okay, here's the other thing. So people our age are typically not used to being a beginner. And we haven't, begin, uh, we haven't been a beginner in a very long time. Many of us have had long-term jobs, 20, 25 years, you know. We're older and wiser. We've accumulated a lot of experience. Um, but to be actively learning, like starting something new, getting evaluative feedback, it can be very uncomfortable. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, one thing I think that we need to realize is when we – what you're describing is to me is a place where you're feeling a sense of struggle. Um, you're struggling because you're in unfamiliar area. Um, so if I was going to give an analogy, I would say that is normal when you're up against your threshold. And if that's really all it's telling you, we, we can label that feeling struggle, but the, it's not, it's, it, when we, when we label, when we put a label on it like that, and they go, well, this is struggle. We go, oh, I don't want struggle. You know, but it's just a feeling. We're labeling it struggle, and struggle has this bad connotation. But let's just look at it from a different perspective. Somebody says, I want to take piano lessons. They go to the piano teacher, and on the first day, they know nothing. It's a skill. And we're talking about building a skill here. Like changing careers and being good at it is a skill. Um, so when you, where do we start with all skills? no skill. That's where we start. We have no skill. And we're on a line where we're, this line is mastery. And that line is the experience of learning. And we can interpret that experience however we want. So let's just say we interpret it as struggle. So this person goes through their very first piano lesson and the teacher shows them the note on the page is here. It's between these two lines. And that note on this keyboard is here. And you press it with this finger. So where does that person feel? Well, they feel overwhelmed because they're up against their threshold. They've never been here before. They don't understand this. It's not committed to memory. It's, you know, it's, they're completely inexperienced at it. So they feel overwhelmed. And the, if we were to interpret that, we would say they feel like they're struggling. So now let's jump ahead five years down the road. Well, what are they doing now? Well, now they're working on a Beethoven piece. And the Beethoven piece is because they just started it, it's just beyond their playing ability. So what are they feeling inside? They're feeling like they're struggling. They're feeling like they're overwhelmed. And the reason I, I say this, that it's so important is to understand is that when you have that feeling, they're not trying to figure out where the note is on the piano anymore. They know that. They've mastered that, just like they've mastered walking across the room. They don't worry about having to walk across the room anymore. They know how to do it. They know how to feed themselves. They know how to button their shirt. But when you're up, when you have that feeling of struggling, it's telling you, that you're pushing your threshold forward. That's all it's telling you. It's that you're in this place right now where you haven't mastered this experience. And how do you master it? You have to be in it. When you're in it, that's your opportunity to execute whatever you, however you have decided to execute in this particular situation. And that's what the situation is offering you. It's just like, you know, in my second book, I, I talked about how I was asked to coach a young woman who was a very uh, competent golfer. It broken all kinds of state records and everything. And there was a big tournament. And normally these kids weren't allowed to have a caddy. But in this particular case, she was. And she, I'd worked with her for a year. Now, we had, I'd watched her at tournaments, taken notes, and talked to her about how to handle situations. Because her concern was, because she had so much physical talent, if she was playing well, she played well. If she started to play bad, then her head got involved, and she just eroded. The wheels would come off. So um, 
in this particular tournament, which if she had won it or placed in the top three, she would have had an opportunity to play in a professional tournament. So it was very important to her. So to jump to the, the, um, the punchline, I've never seen her play so horrible in my life. I mean, we started out and she just could not do anything. She's hitting the ball in the woods and she was so attached to doing well that she surrendered all of her natural ability that she had earned. You know, so she had let go of that because she was so attached. She was afraid of making a mistake and all these things were going through her head. So initially, I didn't say anything to her. We're walking down the fairways because I felt like this is what she paid me to be able to overcome. So don't solve the problem for her. Just let her see if she can do it. And by the fourth hole, it it was just getting worse. And she had completely shot herself out of the tournament. So I thought, well, now's a chance to talk to her. So I asked her a simple question. I said, you know, why did you ask me to work with you? And she said, well, so I could figure out how to overcome a situation like this. And I said, well, how do you think you do that? And she said, I... I don't know. I have tried absolutely everything I know. Nothing is working. I said, I think you're missing my point. I said, the only way you can learn to overcome the situation is to be in this situation. I said, you wanted to learn, how do I come back when my dreams are broken, the wheels are coming off, I'm leaking oil, the whole thing. I said, well, you're there. You stink. I, I can't believe how bad you're playing. I said, this is your opportunity to turn that around. It's your opportunity to practice coming back. You can't do it when you're playing well. You have to be here. I said, so show me what you got. Figure it out. And just that's interpreting the situation differently. She, I said, let go of the tournament. You're not going to win this tournament, but it is not going to determine whether you get a college scholarship or you become pro. It's one tournament. And as soon as she gave herself permission to let go of that and stop judging her performance level, all of a sudden she came right back. And, you know, it was amazing. And what her feeling was at the end of the day was she said she was just bouncing as she was walking down the fairway. And she said, you know, Tom, all the records I broke, the trophies, I'd give them all back for what I learned about myself today and what I'm capable of. She said, because I really didn't think that there, there was any way to turn this situation around. She said, but all I had to do was reinterpret it as the opportunity that it was. And the fear dropped away and the attachment to the goal, all that dropped away. And my natural abilities just came back. So it's a very important lesson you know, for people to understand that, yeah, when you feel like you're struggling, it's, it's just your inner voice saying, hey, we're up against the wall. This is, we're at our point, our threshold of this is, this is where we're good up to here. But right now we're feeling this way because we're not, we haven't mastered this. So let's get to it. It, You know, it really does change your experience. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So talking about people doing things, (laughs) there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about with midlife women in particular, although this can be relevant to so many people. Um, We love multitasking. We grew up in a multitasking culture. Social media is only making it worse. And I really wanted to talk to you about it because I think many of us have gotten the message that multitasking is bad, uh, but there's, we're just so drawn to it to be efficient and to just do more with less time. So you talk a little bit about multitasking and how we can <laughs> just let it go a little bit and focus more. Yeah, there's a, a very simple test. First of all, um, 
well, multitasking is doesn't exist. Um, the, the this is something that the brain studies have shown. So uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when you turned a computer on, you had to put a disc in it. When you turned the computer on, and the computer would boot up with that disc. So if you wanted to use a word processor, you put the word processor disc in, and you turned the computer on, and it came on, and the word processor was on. And then you typed and. And then if you wanted to switch to an accounting program, you know, uh, or a PowerPoint program, then what you had to do was turn the computer off, take that disk out, put another disk in, and turn the computer back on, and the computer would boot up with that. Well, that's actually what happens with the brain. When we think that we're doing multiple things at one time, but the brain is stopping and starting over and over and over again. And that's the reason why multitasking is so fatiguing. Um, because of this, all this ex- extra action that is happening. So there's a very simple test that you know I've I've given. I, I didn't invent the test. I learned about it by um, a guy named Dave Crenshaw who wrote a book called years ago called The Myth of Multitasking, and it was one of the tests that he you know he had put out. And and he was very clear that he did not discover this information. He was just researching it and he was just reiterating it. Um, if you write the sentence, it could be any sentence, but if you just write the sentence multitasking is worse than a lie on a piece of paper. And while you're writing that, instead of just writing it out, what you do is you write M and underneath of it, you put a number. So you go M1, U2, L3. If you just do that all the way across and you time it, and then at the end, you write down how many minutes it took to do that. Then you go back, you start the clock again, and you write the sentence, multitasking is worse than a lie, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight you'll find that the time it takes to do that on the second time is about 40% of what it was the first time. And that's because you think that when you're going M1, U2, you're only doing, your brain is only doing one thing, but it's not only doing one thing. It's changing from the cognitive sense of writing a sentence, a word and a sentence, to writing counting. And from the brain's perspective, that's two different functions. So it has to start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. And this is what is going on with this multitasking. And that's why they have found that when you function, when you do one thing at a time, your productivity goes way up. And that's, again, because you're in the present moment, your thoughts thin out, and your mind is only doing one thing at a time. So you have access to much more of your consciousness. And so you're just much more efficient. And this is something that, you know, corporations really have to get off of. Because um, I, I think that what happens is, you know, we get, we take the, the number of employees and we get rid of 10 of them and give their jobs to other people. So they're doing, now they're doing two things at once in this idea that, well, it's more efficient, we're making more money, but the, um, the, the people's mental health and their efficiency and their productivity is just, is just going down the tubes. So there's enough science out there to, to prove that multitasking is not the way to operate. It really isn't. We get such a charge out of it, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, and it's, the phrase has been thrown around so much that, you know, people will say, oh, just I'm multitasking, I'm multitasking. Well, you're not actually doing more than one. From the brain's perspective, you're not doing more than one thing at a time. You're doing a lot of things in segments, and, um, and it's very tiring. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So I wanted to end the interview with one tip from you. I get so much feedback about this from clients who are, they're doing the work, they're trying to focus, they're trying to be more mindful. 
but they get sucked into distraction and they are having difficulty creating that pause to stay present. What can you offer that might, you know, might be that light bulb and really help people? Well, I I would just briefly say you have got to have some sort of a meditative practice, 10 minutes a day. And why is that? Well, because you can, you know, meditation is a label. It's just a word. And we're not looking for a religious experience here. You know, I would call it thought awareness training because um, as we've already talked about, most of your day, only about 5% of the day, are you in conscious thinking? Now you can increase that. Um, but you have to be aware of when you're, when you are using your mind. I use my mind. I don't allow my mind to use me. When you are um, creating the emotions, you know, these are Sufi poet. I use my emotions. I don't allow my emotions to use me. You can't get to that place where um, you are aware of the thoughts that your mind is producing. And if you're not aware of it, then you're not in control of it unless you practice some meditation. And there's really nothing difficult about it. You know, uh, you can sit in, upright in a chair, close your eyes, focus on your breathing, you relax, you can say a short phrase. I mean, we could talk about that all day, but they're really, it's, the mechanics are very simple. Where people fall apart in it is that because we're, we're taught, got to be the best, you know, um, got to really accomplish, got to achieve, is that they're uncomfortable with this idea that, this stuff, there's no closure to this. And, you know, Susie, there's no closure to what we're talking about here. Learning to be in the present moment learning is a lifetime's work. It's, it's a practice. It's like exercise. You don't start an exercise program and a year later go, well, I'm there. I don't need to exercise for the rest of my <laughs> life. It's not, it's not who we are. It, when you can learn to enjoy it, then it doesn't matter how long it goes on. But the, the problem with meditation for people is, they judge their performance in meditation and there is no such thing as bad performance in meditation. Some days your mind is running all over the place and some days it's relatively calm. That's just what everybody experiences. Even the people I've been meditating over 40 years, I meditate quite a lot. uh, I still experience the same thing, but I don't judge it. I just look at it as this is what meditation is. But what meditation does is, and I tell people just consider this thought awareness training, and you're going to do it for 10 minutes a day, you know, maybe try to work up to 15 minutes a day. I mean, you know, as an adult in midlife, if you can't sit still for 15 minutes, you need to clear your schedule. I mean, (laughs) there's, you know, like this is one of the problems is we feel like we have to be doing something. If we're not doing something, we're not achieving. And this, you know, a little bit of this will allow you for one, it does two things. When you sit there and just try to watch your your breath or say a short phrase like, I am quiet, I am still, it doesn't really matter what the phrase is. It shouldn't be something disturbing, but you know, (laughs) it should be something that makes you feel good about yourself. Um, What happens? Well, the mind, which is a problem-solving machine and wants to go out and solve problems, says, this is boring and I need a problem to solve. So while you're doing this, I'm going to go worry about the kids or I'm going to go work on that report or I'm going to go worry about the finances. And that way I'll get a head start on it. So when it comes time for you to be there, I've already done this work. And, um, and so that's what it does. And then it takes off. And when it does that, in your state of closing your eyes and your eyes are closed and you're watching your breathing, you go with it because you've always gone with it. You've been doing it since you were a child and you don't even know you've gone with it. 
And every, every situation that your mind visits in this state, every time you have a thought, every situation, it interprets it, you have a thought, that creates an emotion, your blood chemistry changes, and so there's all this stuff that's going on that you aren't even aware of and you certainly don't have any control over. So as you go through this and you learn um, and you notice that your mind, because that's what happens, you wake up and you go in this process, in this 10 minutes, you, know, you wake up and you realize that you're at the grocery store trying to remind yourself, don't forget to get. Um, and you go, this isn't in this, it's like a toddler in a toy store, you know, yeah. you're saying, no, back here. They want to run all, once run out. And you go, no, just back here. Well, we've made it, we had a talk in the car, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we're just going to walk down the aisle and get this one thing. And every time that happens, that you notice that your mind has gone off, you identify with who you really are, the observer. You're the observer. You're not the ego. You're the observer. You're not the mind. And you notice that your mind is doing something without your permission. And that's the key to the prison door. And then you pull your mind back on the task. And what's that? That's increasing your willpower and your ability to direct the mind. It's so simple. The mechanics are so simple. And you do that over and over again. And I can tell you when I work with people, it's amazing to watch how much their life changes, how much they start noticing about themselves. And how they start noticing how they're processing situations, how they're interpreting situations. And as soon as you begin to do that, then you begin to have options and choices, which you know you previously didn't have. So in terms of being in the present moment, you can't be in the present moment if you don't notice when you're not. <laughs> and that's part of the reason for doing this. You know, like, um, you could, if, because you get swept away by your thoughts and, your, and the anxiety and the emotional content that it produces. So in order to be able to be in the present moment and to be a conscious choice maker, you have to be aware of what your mind is doing without your permission in order to be in control of your mind. And that's where the real power comes from. The only thing you have to worry about is don't judge. Once again, it's a lifetime's work. It's really like exercising. You do it every day, your skill level goes up, and then you're just, it's an endless, your ability to be in control is endless. You just keep getting better and better. And it's very, very important in terms of finding happiness today uh, and, and being able to perform at your highest. Because when you find yourself in a situation where you really have to focus and you've got to stop your mind from running over, all over the place because it may be feeling anxious about this and that in this particular situation, like say a job interview. You know, you want to be able to reel the mind back in and say, you're, you're on my leash now and you're going to serve me in this interview. In order to be able to do that, you have to notice that the mind is doing that instead of just mm. feeling nervous. And that's what meditation gives to you. So I would say that that is so important because that's your key to the present moment and being aware when you're not and being able to pull yourself back into it. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Thank you so much for that explanation. You know, the brain really does need supervision and it's such a basic concept that is life-changing. I have seen so many clients now experience great calmness that comes from this awareness where they describe it as a shift and yep. they start to see it, like you were saying, come up in other parts of their lives where they're just much more aware that they have options, much calmer and at peace, even though the only thing that's changed is their awareness of their thoughts, which is 
what we're talking about here. <laughs> right. You're, you know, you can't be a conscious choice maker unless you have the opportunity to make the choice. And if you're just being led around by the nose, by your mind, which is just running and getting programs based on whatever situation you're in, then you're not, you don't have a choice. It's just like I said very early on when I set that person up and I just changed my tone of voice. They just reacted to it. They, it wasn't like they sat there and said, hmm, I wonder why he's talking like that. How do I want to respond to that? You know, they, they, they didn't have any of that. There was no choice there, no participation. They just reacted. And Absolutely. So, yes, it, I would say if there's one thing they take away from this, it's, look, you need that 10 minutes a day is, um, is gold. It's worth more than anything else you're going to do. It will, it will infiltrate your relationships, your ability to tolerate situations, your ability to think clearly in situations. Uh, I'd like to see more, but I'll take 10 minutes a day. Oh, that's so good. Tom, thank you so much. You've really helped us understand why the practicing mind is something we should really be focusing on. Where can people find more about you and your book? How do we get in touch? Well, you can get in touch with me at Tom at TomSterner.com. Just email me um, and I will be happy to respond. There is some you know, areas on TomSterner.com where you can sign up for a strategy call, discovery call, whatever you want to talk about. We just sit for free and talk for half an hour and see what you're dealing with and how I might be able to help. And, um, and yeah, and that, you know, and the books are, there's two books. The, the first one was a practicing mind. The second one was fully engaged using the practicing mind. So I would say if you, you know, if you do a search for that, you really need to read the practicing mind first because fully engaged refers back to that. Uh, I'm working on the third book now, but you can buy them, Amazon, Audible, they're, they're available universally. It's out in 10, line, 10, 12 languages now, I believe. Oh, my gosh. It is the number one book that I refer to my clients. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. That Absolutely. is so kind of you. Thank you so much. It was so amazing having you with us today on the Women in the Middle podcast. Thank you. I, um, it was great to see you again. And um, you know, it's been a while. And so, yes, thank you for the opportunity. So good, right? What did you think? Did you find yourself reflecting on those old piano lessons when you were a kid? <laughs> what about how judgmental you are about skills that you're working to develop today? Tom says, and I quote, most of us spend very little time in the present moment. We're usually either thinking about something that has not happened and may never happen or reliving something that already has. Now, what he's getting at here is that we waste each moment's opportunity to experience what's actually happening. How true is this? Really think about it. I catch myself doing this all of the time. It can be a challenge to just focus on what you're doing or what you're learning and be at peace and calm with it without judgment. And finally, there's a quote from the book where Tom summarizes the bottom line. He says, Creating the practicing mind comes down to a few simple rules. Keep yourself process-oriented. Stay in the present. Make the process the goal and use the overall goal as a rudder to steer your efforts. Be deliberate. Have an intention about what you want to accomplish and remain aware of that intention. There you have it, my friend, the practicing mind. It's a really good thing. All right, my focus as a midlife coach is to help you waste less time spinning and feeling stuck. It's time to get excited about your life again. Being the queen of your brain domain is the best way to be. Check out the show notes with more information and links at susierosenstein.com. 
Download my free ebook, Nine Secrets to Get Unstuck in Your 50s, at www.susierosenstein.com forward slash nine secrets. Want to connect with me more in the future? I would love that. Join the free Women in the Middle Community Facebook group where we continue the podcast conversation. Head over to www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash women in the middle community. And if you're ready to put yourself first, you can become a first lady. Join my new midlife membership, the Finally First Club. This is an upbeat virtual community for midlife women just like you who want to stop feeling stuck and confused and finally start making the changes that you want in your next chapter. The clarity, courage, and connection that you're looking for is only one click away. Join us there now. We are waiting for you. Head over to www.iamfinallyfirst.com. Let's do this, ladies. It's time for you to put yourself first, one thought at a time. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. 